Welcome to Inspire Campfire, a podcast where ordinary people tell their stories of extraordinary adventure. These are campfire stories meant to inspire the rest of us to light the fire within, get outside, follow our dreams, and return to tell our own stories. Ready? Let's strike the match. Welcome to the show. I am your host, Scott Wurzbacher, and today we're going to find out how close encounters with the land and its wild creatures can inspire a deeper connection to it. Today's guest felt a call to nature very early on, and following some incredible experiences connecting with the wild in Africa, he's dedicated his life to contemplation in the more-than-human world and now he shares this gift with others. Rupert Marquez is with us, and for 25 years, his professional practice has focused on wilderness rites of passage and the insight meditation tradition. He was trained through the School of Lost Borders in the U.S., and now Rupert teaches throughout Europe, America, and Asia at various retreat centers and beyond. He works with both individuals and organizations, and he's also a writer and contributor to the book Wilder Journeys, compiled by Miriam Lancewood, who was with us for episode 88, and Lori King. And I am so excited to share with you all his stories and wisdom of this curiously courageous adventurer. Rupert, welcome to the campfire. Hey, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you for being here. I have to comment for those that might be listening or watching on YouTube. Um, you look like you're sitting in front of a fake Zoom background, but you're not. You're uh, you're actually in Asheville right now, Asheville, North Carolina. The midges are definitely real, but yeah, I'm in North Carolina. The the birds are chirping, and so fitting that that uh, that we're doing this podcast from North Carolina, and you just happen to be here. Um, for the next couple of days. So that's really awesome. Rupert, if you could, just for listeners, would you mind sharing just a brief overview of the work that you do and where you do it? I mean, there's two strands to my work. One is the Wilderness Rites of Passage work, um, holding space for people at particular transitions in their life to gain greater clarity or intentionality around the journey of their life. And the other is contemplative practice. Um, yeah, as you mentioned in the insight meditation tradition, this capacity to listen to the inner landscape of our own minds um, in a way, the inner wilderness of our own psyche, again, for in service of freedom, for a greater possibility of living well on this earth, a more soul-infused life. Mm. There's a lot there that uh, I really want to dig into for listeners and frankly for myself. Um, but before we do that, I want to build up to how you got to this point. And uh, in the book, World Wilder Journeys, which is fantastic, in your uh, piece that you wrote, you talk about an early dissatisfaction with culture and this call that you felt to adventure. And I, I wonder if you could share a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very true. Uh, I did feel a significant dissatisfaction with my culture, with what I was offered through the educational system. When I looked around and saw adults were doing with their life kind of a nine to five, and then let's get home and watch TV. It just wasn't really nourishing for me. 
And uh, so, yeah, as a young man leaving school and like I had no real idea of myself or my purpose or even as collectively as human beings what we were doing on this planet. Of course, I could hear in the news even back then, like some 40 years ago, 30 to 40 years ago, the environmental destruction happening on the planet. And that concerned me, but I didn't see any movement to engage with that. The kind of business as usual cultural story just didn't feed me, it didn't nourish me. And so I had to look outside of my culture to find yeah, a more conscious orientation to this life. Mm. So where, where was your childhood? Mm, that was in the middle of England, uh, kind of in suburbia, surrounded by monoculture fields. You know, but at that time, before the internet, we still used to play outdoors, but there wasn't so much, you know, like here in the States, there wasn't so much wilderness there. The UK being the heart of the Industrial Revolution, small island, a lot of people. So, you know, we would go out to the fields and derelict building sites. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I left Leicester as soon as I could because, yeah, there's something else was calling me. Yeah. I mean, do you, could you talk a little, do you remember like as a kid, like some of those feelings and sort of how they manifested for you? Yeah. I mean, I wrote in the book, um, I remember even as a young lad, just looking out my bedroom window to the horizon where the fields would end and just this sense of what's beyond that. There's got to be something beyond the horizon, beyond my culture. You know, of course I'd read books about Tarzan and other adventures and I just felt pretty constrained within my own culture and this sense that there had to be something more than what I was being offered. Yeah. And, and I'm curious, like as a young boy, like what fuels that desire to find out? Mm. I mean, I think as a young child, there's that innate curiosity in all of mm. us to want to live life as fully as possible. I think that can often become concrete concreted over through the educational system so there's a nat natural movement as a young child you know to wander toward life but as a young man what fueled that was just dissatisfaction i was just very dissatisfied with what was being offered to me yeah but i think you know i spent you know a fair amount of time working with young people as well as adults these days and already a young child has that innate curiosity, that wonder toward life. And if that young person is supported, that connection with a wider natural world, of course, those threads of connections would strengthen. But often in our culture, the wider natural world is just seen as something other. Um, we're not invited as perhaps indigenous traditions would invite their young people to explore the relationship with the modern human world as though these trees, these rocks, these four-leggeds, these winged ones are all our relatives with whom to have a connection and a sense of belonging and kinship. Mm. So that, of course, was very absent from my upbringing in industrial culture. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so for you, it almost seems like, I mean, this was something like innate that just sort of I mean, for so many of us, we're just, you know, we're raised in these like concrete jungles, right? Like these cities. And it's just, we just go about our daily, our, our daily doings. And we don't, we don't even think on this level, but it sounds like there was just sort of something innate inside of you that was calling you out of that and pulling you out of that. Yeah. As I say, the dissatisfaction was strong. I wasn't 
willing to live the life that my culture was offering me because it seemed didn't have soul, didn't have meaning, didn't have purpose. And not that there is no meaning and purpose in culture, but from what I was seeing around me, what my educational system was presenting to me as a successful human life, it just it didn't seem so engaging. Um, so the dissatisfaction is key. And I would argue that many people in contemporary culture feel that dissatisfaction. The problem is our culture is so skilled at distracting us away from that sense of dissatisfaction, filling us up with all manner of distractions and entertainments or intoxicants that we don't have to feel that disquiet or that unease or that calling of one's soul. We can, we can have a comfortable enough life that we can get by. But yeah, I wasn't so interested in just getting by. Um, so I think that's wounding of our times, you know, the, the distraction away from what might invite us to a, to a meaningful and significant life. Now that, is a, that is a challenge of our times. Yeah. And, and you were not distracted by the distraction. Um, I think I read in, in your book or in the, in Wilder Journeys that, um, you said the first job that you got, you took the money and bought some boots and a backpack. Yeah, it's true. I hauled my boat off to Scotland and froze my ass off while I was there. It's <laughs> <laughs> like my first back, back trip. I wasn't well prepared and, but I was called to find something outside of my culture. And I didn't know where to go, who to ask. You know, there wasn't elders around to direct me this way or mentor me. So I just went to somewhere wild, something inside of me, maybe from those times as a young boy looking to the horizon or time outside playing on the land, something drew me to the wilderness. And Scotland was the wilderness we have in the UK. And so, yeah, I just went there and I did find. You know, I remember just feeling that there was something larger than my culture. There was something larger that would hold me, something that I belonged to that was more than the human community. And I couldn't have articulated it then, but it was this sense of, yeah, there is a larger, there's a larger feel to that which I belong to. And also, you know, as we're speaking about this, I don't also want to romanticize this time. It was hard being in my culture with this sense of dissatisfaction and not knowing my place, my direction, my calling and how to serve and meet the times that we're living through. It's kind of a long gray night of the soul and it was hard. It's hard to be in that place of listening, of uncertainty, of really being called to find one's way in the world. Hey everyone, it's Scott here. Did you know that the members of my real estate team, W Realty Group, are listening to their own voices that call to adventure by setting big goals? Some of those goals include planning trips to Bali and the Kingdom of Bhutan, buying investment homes and running the Chicago Marathon. At W Realty Group, we support and encourage these big goals and want to help turn them into reality. We're currently looking to add new members to the team. If you know a great real estate agent in the Charlotte, North Carolina area that would benefit from being part of our team, please send a text, an email, or give me a call. And know that when you support W Realty Group, you're also supporting this podcast. Thanks for listening. You seems like in Scotland, in the wilderness in Scotland, you you found something, you found a taste, but it still mm. wasn't it wasn't complete. Yeah, so 
that that taste was the beginning for me of apprenticing myself to the land. And so, you know, there were times I would go to other places in the UK, you know, find myself in Wales, for example, or parts of England that wasn't completely human dominated monoculture fields. And um, yeah, I had a hunger. I had a hunger for that. And eventually I also found other people, you know, I encountered Joanna Macy in the deep ecology movement. And through encountering such people and such communities, I realized that I wasn't alone in my dissatisfaction. I wasn't alone in feeling disenchanted by my culture. And in fact, people such as Joanna would say, you know, it's a sign of health that you feel uncomfortable in a culture that is in some ways pathological, detrimental to the biosphere, detrimental to the flourishing of the human soul, detrimental to social equity. So I began to feel a validity in my own dissatisfaction, but I also knew it wasn't enough just to be dissatisfied. I had to find something that would feel satisfying. So yeah, the deep ecology movement was one thread. Um, and at that time in my life, I took a pilgrimage to India and encountered contemplative practice, meditative practice. So beginning, beginning to understand my own mind, that was a thread of support for me. What I began to feel that it is possible to live in this world in a conscious way, in a way that's enlivening rather than diminishing. And yeah, that also took me to my journeys in Africa as well. Yeah. And that's, I really want to go there. I'm excited to, to mm. hear a little bit more about those stories and some of the encounters that you had there. So, so what brought you to Africa? Well, it was during one of those times exploring deep ecology with Joanna Macy that there was a colleague on one of those courses who lived in Zimbabwe and she was involved in, um, ecological regeneration. So she had many contacts of the land there with the indigenous communities. At that time, I'd already decided I wanted to go to the States and study and uh, to study in the field of eco-psychology. But before I settled down, I really wanted to taste what being in true wilderness would be like. You know, I'd been to Scotland and places like that, and one can certainly get lost there and one can certainly be humbled by there. I was just there earlier this spring huge storm shredding my tent breaking my tent poles humbling me big time so one can still feel that but i wanted to be in an environment that you know where i felt that i was part of the food chain where human beings were not in control it may be like this romantic image of those tarzan books i used to read read i wanted to feel how it was to be in an environment where humans were just a participant and yeah a member of the biological web of life and so i thought you know i wrote to bev this colleague in zimbabwe said hey can i come over and visit and she said yes and um so she supported me in having a range of wilderness experiences there going out solo into the bush and also meeting some of the indigenous people um, of that land and both of those um both of those avenues were really fruitful and formative for me. Yeah. You, you've mentioned Tarzan a couple of times. <laughs> can you can you share a couple of the stories with us about your experiences in the wild? Well, well, one thing to say, you know, that image of Africa as this great wilderness, you know, that was really dispelled as I was flying over in a biplane over huge areas of Africa 
And even there, there's so much that has been humanly dominated, the, the agriculture, the pastoralism, and the wilderness areas, it wasn't like the whole of Africa was wild. Mm -hmm. Even there, wilderness had been tamed to a large extent. And that's not to say there's not genuine wilderness there. You know, I would go to certain areas and I would gain elevation and all around me, as far as I could look, was just wilderness. So one could really feel one is in an environment that is non-humanly dominated. Yeah. Yeah. You talked a little bit about in the in Wilder Journeys about experiences venturing out on your own mm. into the bush. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I wonder if you could talk about and, and specifically had some encounters with some wild creatures out there and, uh, and a connection that was made with them. And I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. I mean, so one of my intention was to feel I'm just part of the food chain. But it's one thing to kind of romanticize how that might be, but it's quite another to actually feel that. Yeah. Like I remember there's a place called Huangi National Park, and there you're not really permitted to go out solo. But I kind of found a hole in the fence, and so I would go out to dawn and dusk. And I remember going out into the bush, and like hearing lions roar. It's like almost peeing myself, yeah. you know, it's like, you know, rushing back to safety. Of course, I didn't know at that time when lions roar, they're not actually hunting. They're very stealthy when they're hunting. But the way I would walk in the landscape would, would be, there would be a depth of attentiveness and presence there because I had to be so aware of what was going on around me. So it was this deeply respectful presence to the landscape that you can't manufacture in a landscape where you're the dominant species, such as in England. And because I knew my life depended on upon me being sensitive and attentive to the land around me, there's this heightened sense of presence. And so yeah, there were there were sometimes encounters where it was very clear to me that I was not the dominant species. Like one one encounter I write about was meeting uh, an elephant, this old one-tusked bull elephant. And when I came upon him, he was peeing. And the first thing I learned was, geez, elephants can pee a long time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I noticed the elephants like maybe like 20 meters away. Eventually the elephant stops peeing and then notices me and then just slowly walks toward me. I'm like, wow, okay. And then at some point, the elephant gets so close to me that something in my body is like, there's the kind of a bodily response of fear. And I, I remembered when I was reflecting on this, it's like when I've been stalking deer, and even though I don't have any intention to harm the deer, when I get close, that deer will just run. And it was like that for me, when that elephant, and this huge, just like the size of a house when it comes close, massive African elephant, so when it grew close enough, even though it was just gently coming over, my body was just like, I'm out of here. So I started backing away, elephant's still coming. I start turning around and walking a little faster, elephant's still coming. And now I'm like, okay, I start to run a bit and then the elephant's just, <laughs> and then I look around and like, an elephant doesn't stop for much. Like I'm having to move in and out of the bush. The elephant, just anything in front of the elephant is just bulldozed. 
So then I have this exquisite feeling, it's probably less than a minute it lasted, but this exquisite feeling of now I'm running for my life. My life is dependent upon me, hauling my ass, finding the biggest trees I can zigzag behind that the elephant can't just mow over. So that was one encounter where I realized, yeah, yeah this is, have to be respectful here and part of the food chain. So, I mean, in, raw instinct was kicking in for you and you felt it. Yeah, yeah. And you were conscious of it. Yeah, so that's the thing. I think when we lived in an environment where we were immersed in the wider natural world and we had to depend upon and survive in that wilderness, there was an acute sense of awareness there that we would have possessed. And definitely we would have felt that, that sense of respect, I believe, but also that deepening sense of presence with the wider natural world. You know, I just took a, a group of students on a hike yesterday here in North Carolina. It was fine and beautiful. And it was a meditation retreat, so there's definitely a quality of presence. But it was a different quality of presence where each footstep, you're just attentive and aware because you just don't know what's in the bush. I have a question about that because, you know, so much of, I'm, I'm for, for lack of a better word, I'm just going to call it sort of new age, right? Talks a lot about like the, the importance of staying present. Mm. And we have to kind of, you know, we have to kind of force ourselves to stay present, right? And what I'm hearing you say is when you put yourself in that environment, you didn't really have to try to be present. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a curious thing to imagine our ancestors. How would they have lived? What quality of presence would they have? Because, yeah, one is impelled to be present. Um, and it's not to say, you know, for instance, through contemplative practice that we don't cultivate that sensitivity. And for me, that's an interesting thing. Like, because, you know, frankly, in my everyday life, I'm not about to be run over by an elephant or a water buffalo. So how do we cultivate that quality of presence in one's everyday life? And that's possible too. But yeah, you're right. We do have to work at it. It doesn't come for free. It takes a conscious intention. But it, it can still have this poignancy and intimacy with life. There can still be this closeness through that quality of presence that we might cultivate through contemplative practice, for example. Yeah. I want to talk about some of the feelings that you had there and some of that. I wonder though, because I maybe want to refer to both of them. Can you tell the water buffalo story as well? Okay. So one more story from Africa. <laughs> right. Again, this is a humbling story. So I was at uh, Mana Pools and this is um, an area, big river system. And uh, one evening, um, I remember walking out to a particular river it's beautiful. And this is kind of like jungle book Tarzan image, this really classic, you know, yeah. baby elephants coming down to drink water in the evening, all the songs of the jungle all around, the yellow sun low streaming through the jungle. Some of those classic romantic images. So then on my way back, I had to cross this large open plain, this expanse before getting to the other side where my camp was. And as I started to cross this plain, out from the other side of the plain, this water buffalo starts coming. And so I'm like, okay, I go to the left, and water buffalo goes to the left, I go to the right, water buffalo goes to the right. I'm like, what's going on? It's like, so we're getting closer and closer. I'm like, what's the big deal? I just want to get across this plain. Because if I, if I have to, you know, otherwise, if I don't cross the plain, I have to go all the way through the jungle, 
huge detour around the plane to get back to camp and it's getting dark i don't want to make that detour it's like all i want to do is get across the plane just let me get across i'm minding my own business so water buffalo's carrying on it's like maybe 100 meters in front i'm like okay Manu a mano. It's like, I'm not backing down. Here you get water <laughs> buffalo. It's like, I just want to get across. I'm not disturbing you. So coming on, coming on. Maybe 50 meters, still there. Getting a little closer. I'm like, I'm not backing down. So maybe we're about, I don't know, 30 meters or so. I stop and the water buffalo starts pouring the ground i'm like <laughs> okay i'm backing down <laughs> so i haul my butt all the way back all the way around the plane through the jungle and eventually get to my camp just about dark nightfall so yeah, it's just humbling you can't like in retrospect it was like okay there was some wisdom there i cannot go face to face with a water buffalo and come out on top it's like no and that's uh, so like can you share what can you share the wisdom in that one it requires some humility and this again speaks to the domestication of culture like when i'm in a field in england if there's a whole bunch of cows i'm just going to walk straight through them and they'll move out the way but in the in the wilder landscape we don't have that arrogance to dominate the non-human world in that way as if we're the top of the food chain everything's under our control it, it just showed me hey remember your place here yeah, so yeah that water the, buffalo was reminding me okay you know we hear a lot about ego like did was was ego a factor there i mean the sense of arrogance and human superiority and human dominance definitely a factor and i think they're really pervasive in our culture you know what fuels this mindset that we can dominate the planet now we can just extract resources put our waste out there you know the sixth mass extinction of species it's this same mindset of anthropocentrism human centrism dominance as though everything is here for us rather than we're here to be in communion with a wider web of life and in some way not just communion but bring the unique gift of a human being to creation, to this web of life. You know, what is it as human beings that we can bring forth to this planet that would make this planet more beautiful? You know, what do we offer? Just as the oak trees here would offer their life-giving breath, their habitat for other species, they would hold the soil together. You know, as two-legged, what's our offering to creation, to this planet? It's a good question. It's a question that we might not be holding at school so much. You know, what's our role here? And what's what's our role as individuals, the unique gift of our life? You know, when we speak about initiatory work, it's really attending to what's the unique gift of your life? What are you here for on this planet? Yeah. So Rupert, I mean, you you have immersively gone into the wild and had these head-to-head -head encounters and you know i know the fear was there but i know that you had this intense presence this connectedness what answers have you found to those questions the questions of what we're here for mm, we have this unique capacity to find a sense of wonder and awe and a sense of gratitude that comes from that intimacy one answer i would say is that human beings is a space that the universe has created to feel its own grandeur, to touch its own face, to fall in love with itself. This capacity we have of this 
awareness, this presence, this quality to be aware of life. This is such a unique gift. You know, the oak tree brings its gift to creation in its own way. But this, this human way has something because of this consciousness we have. That's why I say the human being is, is a space the universe has created to know itself, to feel itself, to be conscious of itself, to fall in love with itself in this particular way. So this sense of, this sense of awe and wonder of the very fact that creation is here at all. And from that gratitude, how might we live? Not because we're supposed to live in an ethical way, not because somebody says we should do, but this deepening intimacy with life and the sense of our belonging naturally would express itself in an ethical care toward oneself, toward others, toward the wilderness, toward mm. the biosphere. Mm. Because of this capacity to consciously attend to life. So that, that whole movement from when I was a young boy to now, all we could say it's the movement of a deepening way of consciously holding this life. Wow. So you just you just alluded to it, but what 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 has that transformation been like for you as you know that young boy that's looking out the window saying like what's beyond to where you are now? Well, it's true that there is something beyond what I found in my culture there. When I first encountered the you know people like Joanna Macy and working in in that field of deep ecology and asking those deeper questions and encountering people from indigenous traditions as well and them speaking in different language, but toward the same central thread of our deepening belonging, our purpose here. So that boy looking out the window, that young man, are you really yearning for something wider than the cultural narrative and a feeling of dissatisfaction? And what I've experienced is yes, there is something larger than the contemporary industrial cultural narrative. And the flavor of that might be not dissatisfaction, but a sense of fulfillment and meaning and purpose and belonging. A satisfaction born not of acquiring ever more material goods and having a greater power, but a satisfaction and fulfillment in this exploration of what a meaningful life might be. And one feels one is belonging to creation and taking one's part in it. So when I come to die, that I could die in a good way and say, yes, I've offered my life to something that feels I'm integrity with. And, you know, saying that again, like my life is challenging every day. It's a challenge to live in, in, in integrity, to live into what's possible. It's not one has this great vision of what's possible. Yeah, one has a vision and a sense of what's possible, but every day is required to live into that vision. Yeah. Yeah. Questions we could have is like, what supports that? Certainly connection with the modern human world supports that. Certainly time to listen to one's own soul, one's calling, and certainly time and community supports that. If there's one thing that will bring us through these times, I feel it will be the reclaiming of community. It's so needed. And the pandemic of isolation and hyper-individualism is such a wound. So yeah, the reclaiming of community feels crucial. Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. I think uh, people people come together and that makes all the difference. Y you talk about your dissatisfaction as a youth. Mm. Do you feel like you've been able to transcend that dissatisfaction? 
there's a difference. In my youth, there was a dissatisfaction and no sense of a pathway out of that. Now I have a sense of the pathway out of that. And it's when I fall off that path that dissatisfaction comes. Mm. So that's the difference. Can you say that again? Because that was profound. <laughs> so as a youth, all I knew was dissatisfaction and there was no pathway out of that. And in my own life, yes, there is a pathway out of that. But now my dissatisfaction comes when I fall off that path. Yeah, that's beautiful. So Rupert, you used a couple of times, one of my favorite words that I use on this podcast often, which is awe. Mm. And early on in the podcast, I did what I do. And I went to the dictionary to see what the dictionary has to say. And, and uh, dictionary defines awe as a feeling of reverential respect mixed with fear or wonder. And I'm just wondering how that definition hits for you. I mean, I don't know if I feel fear when I'm in awe, but also I would say I'd be careful not to make awe into something that's kind of so far away on some high refined level. Like this morning, I was just sitting, just looking out at the trees, the light on the trees, the gentle breeze through the leaves. And there was an intimacy there. We could call that awe in the very ordinary, the very simple, but it's the quality of attention, the quality of presence that brings forth that awe. It doesn't have to be, oh, a massive rainbow coming and now a buzzard flying around my head three times. Oh, now I can feel awe. But the quality of intimacy and presence we bring to life, that might be the root of awe. Mm. And it can be so very ordinary. And yet the intimacy with the ordinary then somehow makes it fulfilling. Yeah. The intimacy with the with the ordinary, yeah, mm, yeah, because we we are so often overlooking the ordinary in the search for something special, but what we're looking for might not be so far away. But it's just the eyes that are looking that might need to change. Rupert, when you were in Africa and some of those experiences, just to, to touch on a couple of the feelings, can you talk about fear? Yeah, fear would come. Sometimes it would be fear born out of the mind such as, you know, hearing the lions roar or, you know, the story when hyenas are circling around my tent, it's like, okay, the stories that the mind, oh, what's going to happen to me? And then sometimes it would just be a very more visceral fear, like a porcupine suddenly rushes out the bush or I'm climbing a ledge and suddenly cobra, whoosh. Then that's that more visceral, intimate, body-based fear that the body responds before the mind has any chance to do anything. Yeah. Did did um, did the fear become easier to deal with like the longer that you were out there? Is it something that's practiced? I think perhaps, and it's hard for me to remember now, but what I perhaps imagine happened, that visceral fear to immediate threat would always be there. But the fear that's cultivated in the mind about, oh, what could happen if this happens? What could happen if that? That kind of proliferation in the mind bringing forth fear, perhaps unnecessarily, I think that would have quietened down. Yeah, that makes complete sense. And so I guess a similar question, but what we might call a more, um, a more positive feeling is that like that feeling of aliveness and the feeling of being connected to nature. Yeah. Can you talk, can you speak to that a little bit? 
in general these days or from that time or yeah well then sure then and now so yeah as i spoke before the feeling of being compelled to be attentive moment by moment you know that engenders that intimacy like when one is so attentive to the moment there's not enough time for the mind to be thinking about this in the future or that happened in the past and in the absence of being lost in peripheral thoughts, again, the intimacy with the moment, with the landscape, um, yeah, brings that sense of fulfillment. And it's not not only in moments of heightened sensitivity because of fear. Like I remember there's a place called Chamani Mani, very high cliffed areas. And I remember once hiking up real, so I could see the whole overview of the plain and, uh, I had my little camp by this cave and there was a pool of water there and I had all I needed. I had enough food in my backpack. It's a funny story. I actually, I wanted to go very minimalistic. So I just packed fruit, dried fruit and fruit, a whole load of bananas in my backpack. And by the time I got up there, I just had big banana smoothie in my backpack. Anyway, <laughs> another story. But that, that sense of being there, this beautiful cave to sleep in, the water to drink from and bathe, this whole landscape below me, I could see the clouds rolling through the plains. That sense of beauty can also bring that quality of awe and presence. It doesn't yeah. have to be driven by fear. So it's a great question. You know, what is it in our life that brings a sense of awe or contentment? But and my sense is there will always have to be a quality of presence there. Yeah. You cannot have a sense of awe without a quality of presence. I think that is whether it's the fear or the wonder or both combined, they kind of snap you into this place of presence. Yeah. 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 So Rupert, the, this experience in, in Africa obviously inspired you and, and, you know, kind of set you off on a whole nother journey. And I know that there's a lot of parts between, um, between Africa and the school of lost borders, but I, I wonder, um, you're the first person that that mentioned the School of Lost Borders to me. I wonder if you could tell us about that. Yeah, so the School of Lost Borders is a school based out of California and that works with contemporary wilderness rites of passage. And they have been doing that for decades now, bringing people out onto the land at a time in a person's life where there's there's needing to be some attention given. It could be the transition into adulthood, to womanhood, to manhood. It could be midlife crisis. There's a sense of like, geez, where's my life been going? I've been traveling this path in my life. Is it really serving me now? And the sense of needing to reflect on life could be the movement into elderhood, could be because of a loss, a separation, could be because an addiction is compelling one to attend to one's life. So some kind of sense of a transitional point in their life and they're wanting to gain clarity in that or wanting to mark that or honor that. And so in this particular tradition, um, four days and nights are offered alone in the wilderness, preceded by a period of days inquiring with that person as to their intention for marking this passage right. And afterwards, a number of days mirroring the story back that's happened in that threshold time in the wilderness. So that person gets to see more clearly and a sense of empowerment and being witnessed in their particular story. So, of course, traditional peoples have had many passage rites and the exploration in contemporary times is how to 
find our own way to honoring what people before us have honored, namely an individual human life and their place, their role in community, their place in the world. In short, I would say it's a ceremony that really honors a person. Mm. So you've trained at the School of Lost Borders in these uh, wilderness rites of passage. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit more about um, how you have taken that work into what you're doing today and how you help people today? Yeah, so that is one of the main threads of my livelihood. And again, still holding to that main form of four days and nights fasting in the wilderness, preceded by some days supporting intention and some days afterwards hearing the stories. And the, the way I'm working in the UK and Europe with that is having elongated training. So we will work over the course of a year. Um, each season, we will look at, we will go onto the land and receive the mirror of the natural world in spring, summer, autumn, winter, and how that might mirror something of our human journey, childhood, adolescence, adulthood, and elderhood. What are the social and ecocentric developmental tasks that are invited as we walk this journey as this human life. So for example, childhood, you know, the social developmental tasks might be forming of language and forming of relationships with primary caregivers. But in an ecocentric wheel, the ecocentric developmental task would be forming a connection with a more than human world as I was speaking of earlier, that yeah. all of these beings out here, there are relatives. And if that, if that happened, one would expect as a person co comes into adolescence and is inquiring about their life, what touches them, what wounds them, an adolescent in this wheel would somehow feel the wounds that are happening to the wider earth community are actually happening to their body. And they would be concerned about this. They would feel in some way compelled to care for this life, that the gift of their life would be offered up not just to the human community, but the wider ecological community. And so on as we go around adulthood and elderhood, the different tasks and invitations. And so we work in this way around the whole seasons, the whole course of the year in different seasons, to learn from something from the mirror of the natural world about how it is to be a human on this planet learning from the land as a teacher, a mentor, as a place of refuge. And because we do it in community, it also restores these bonds of community. And because also the third thread, you know, one thread connection with the land, the second with the community, the third thread is connection with one's soul, one's individual calling. So these three threads wrapped together, it's kind of a lot to put into a bit of a nutshell. No, it's great, but and what I'm kind of feeling is, you know, the... Um the fact that the earth right the planet needs healing like environmental healing right like i'm getting the sense that the work that you do in helping people you know discovering their soul and 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 the healing of the environment and the planet it's all connected yeah so it would be different you know going into a psychotherapist's office and working with you know my calling or whatever or my wounding you know that has its place but in wilderness work we we acknowledge that the wider natural world has a part to play in our maturation. And we have a part to play in the well-being of the biosphere. There's that, that mutuality that eco-psychology would point to, that my health, that our health as a people, 
is dependent upon the health of the biosphere. This isn't a new insight. Indigenous peoples have known this for so long, but somehow in our culture, we think we can box ourselves away and have a healthy human culture in a degraded planet. So, so much of the wilderness work that we're seeing in so you know, proliferation in so many areas now from forest schools to wilderness rites of passage and so much in between, they're based on this premise of this, this deep sense of belonging. I really love this work that you're doing. How do people get started with you? I mean, people hear word of mouth and they will see what courses I'm up and maybe they'll come and participate in something and yeah, we'll take it from there. I love it. How can people find you? So my website is handontheearth.org. Um, and I guess you'll have links as well on your site. Definitely. We'll put those but on there. There's so many people doing good work in, in this field and so many others here in the States. Um, the School of Lost Board is one in California. Also another beautiful program called Weaving Earth. You know, there's a real proliferation of this work now because the soul yearns for meaning. Kind of happy hour, Netflix is not fulfilling for the soul. Mm -hmm. It can give a temporary satisfaction, but deeply it's not fulfilling. So it's not surprising we see this work unfolding in our times because yeah. the yearning for meaning and the need to care for life is so strong right now. Yeah, absolutely. So Rupert, I mean, you know, your story, especially the piece where you pick up and go to Africa and you're, you find yourself face to face with a water buffalo and you've got lions that are out here uh, roaring, right? And you're out there by yourself and you know, you're know you face to face with an elephant. Like, I think a lot of people are going to be able to relate to that feeling of dis dissatisfaction that you felt and that calling that you felt, but maybe not so much like, uh, I'm not going to Africa and I'm not like, I'm not ready to be face to face with, with wild animals. What advice would you have for those people that have that, that relate to that feeling, but aren't ready to, to go to such, I'm going to say, for lack of a better word, to such an extreme. Yeah, I mean, that's good because it would be problematic if everybody who felt <laughs> Africa. So, you know, like, as Rumi says, there are a thousand ways to kneel and kiss the ground. Like my two paths, the wilderness called me. I needed to know the taste of wilderness and equally contemplative practice. You know, I walked a thousand miles in India on pilgrimage, spent many long retreats listening to my own mind. These are the two threads that have called me. But there are so many other callings. So the question for me is, in response to this dissatisfaction or in response to one's calling, how will one make the space in one's life to listen? For me, it was to go to the wilderness or to be on retreat. But this, how will one make the space and, and young people in particular really deserve the opportunity to listen. Like, I think it's a travesty in our culture where this kind of factory and then, okay, school, university, career. So how do young people in particular given the opportunity to listen? But no matter where we are in life, how will we make or create the conditions to listen so something might be revealed to us? Mm -hmm. And then that's where the trouble starts. When something is revealed to us, a particular calling, then we have to give ourselves to that. That might influence, it might change our life. So the first thing would be the listening. Listening seems so fundamental. That's why I was saying in my early story, didn't want to romanticize it. Sometimes it's hard to listen. 
we want the immediate answer. It's like, but it's not like going to the supermarket and buying something off the shelf. So yes, the first invitation would be to listen and then how to find the courage to respond to what one hears in the listening. And so there could be so many ways. And as I say, the supportive community is crucial in this. Um, but just to be willing to feel the dissatisfaction or the call for something and to not let that go, to not, to the best extent that's possible, to not live a life that doesn't have a depth of meaning. And that is a privileged position. You know, I've spent some years living and working in India. And for many people, there's not even the possibility of that. Just to get enough food on the table to feed the children is all that's possible. So I'm not inviting this as a kind of, if one isn't able or doesn't have the conditions in one's life to do this, one's responsible for family. For It's more a reflection upon that we're living in a culture that doesn't prioritize this for us. But to the extent that we can, the real possibility of listening to that inner voice and what it's calling us toward. Mm. And not only the inner voice, when we look out and see the story of the world, how we feel called to respond to the outer circumstances as well is equally important, that marriage of the inner and the outer. Yeah, I, I really love this because in a really beautiful way, what I heard was we need to listen to that voice inside that calls us to adventure and then have the courage to say yes. <laughs> and to find what resources we might need to support that. Yeah, I love this. And to know that collectively something is possible, not just individually. I love this. So Rupert, I ask everybody that comes on this podcast a couple of fun questions to wrap up. You have lived an incredible life and you're still going and you've got so many amazing stories. And you know those guys in Hollywood, they're going to want to make a movie about you. <laughs> the question that I ask everybody is, who's going to be the Hollywood actor that's going to play you in your movie? I mean, the first person that comes, I'm not a big movie watcher, but the first person that comes to mind is Catherine Hepburn. I don't know how she'd play me, but there's something about her determination in her life of not conforming her life to the particular role models that might have been expected. Something about her forthrightness, kind of her audacity that comes. I love this. We're taking the characteristics and we're running with it. Catherine Hepburn. I love it. And what's your movie going to be called? It would be called Listening to an Ordinary Life. Oh, Listening to an Ordinary Life, starring Catherine Hepburn. This is great. Thank you so much, Rupert. This Thank has you. been truly, I, I, I'm going to say, an enlightening conversation. Uh, truly. I really appreciate your time today. Um, it's been fantastic. And for those listening, I hope you've been inspired today as much as I have. I hope that Rupert's story has encouraged you to listen to the voice inside that calls you to adventure, because we want to hear your story next. If you have a story to tell, or you just need a nudge to create one, please send me an email. We'd also appreciate it if you'd help us spread the word by leaving a review and sharing or tagging Inspire Campfire in your social media. And until next time, I want to encourage you to get outside. Thank you for listening. River, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for the invitation.